Amen. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. This morning we will be looking in Luke chapter 3, and you can find it in your pew Bible in 858. We will be reading Luke chapter 3, 1 through 20. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, the Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Triconitus, and Lysianus, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages." And the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. And John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God, as we entered into this place of worship this day and we sang praises to you, recognizing that you would leave your spirit on earth until the work is done, we know this day it's not done. For Jesus, your son, is not returned. And so we make it our prayer, Holy Spirit, speak for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are many qualities and characteristics by which we look at people who inspire us, who encourage us, who who motivate us 
Perhaps you are motivated and inspired by people with great courage, boldness. We love to see people with courage and boldness, don't we? But we often consider what is courageous and boldness in categories that we, in fact, might agree with. Maybe they are taking a stand judicially. Maybe we're looking at a soldier who laid down his life for his countrymen, you and me. Maybe it's someone who is furthering an agenda that you have. Or maybe it's simply they are saying and doing something you wish you could do or you wanted to do, but they did it for you. I just wonder how inspirational and motivated are you when such men preach the word to you? When jokes are gone, when entertainment is absent, flattery is over, are you still encouraged by such boldness from the preached word of God? There's a man, perhaps you've heard of him. It's a story from my understanding that's pretty widely known, but there tend to be different versions of it. His name's Peter Cartwright. He was a 19th century Methodist preacher slash revivalist. And on one occasion, he was preaching, and the president, Andrew Jackson, was to be a part. He was going to be in the congregation that day. And so Peter was addressed prior to and said, hey, you need to stay in line. Don't say anything that would be out of line. And so as he gets up to preach, he opens, and this is what he says. I understand Andrew Jackson is here. I have been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent. You can imagine how the congregation perhaps took it, perhaps even how Andrew Jackson himself took it. But what was most interesting is after the service, Andrew Jackson went to go meet Peter Cartwright, shook his hand, and this is what he said to him. Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. How do you hear God's word boldly, truthfully preached to you? This is an account when we're looking at John the Baptist that I would doubt is foreign to you. You have no doubt heard him, or at least of him. No doubt you have heard some of his ministry and his encounter. And so my prayer has been all week, Lord, please help us see with fresh eyes what truth does John the Baptist demonstrate for the people of God? And so I want to look at this text. It is a long text, I understand. But I want to do so with two points. A promise fulfilled. And then secondly, preparation for Jesus. First, a promise fulfilled. Obviously, Luke chapter 3, verse 1, comes right after Luke chapter 2, verse 52. And so you are reading and you keep going and it seems to make sense to you. It's just a natural progression. But between verse 52 and verse 1, there's roughly 18 years of silence. You don't have any more encounters. 
We learned of Jesus' birth and his boyhood, but the next time we see Jesus, he's a grown man. We don't have any real stories of John the Baptist as a boy. We have something of his birth, and then we see him as a grown man. And so don't you find it odd how Luke decides to break such a silence? That here, these two boys, now men, he's going to reintroduce them to you. How does he do it? He does so with a list of names. He gives to us these names, Tiberius Caesar, that tells you something. Caesar Augustus is no longer in power. Caesar Augustus was the one in power when Jesus was born, but he's no longer there. You learned of Pontius Pilate. He's the governor of Judea. Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee. That is not Herod the Great. That is Herod Antipas. That's one of his sons and his brother Philip. You learned of Lysianus. You hear of these two high priests. And if you're any bit of a biblical scholar, it probably perked your interest. You said, that doesn't sound right. You can't have two high priests according to the Old Testament law. And you would be right. The reason why Luke gives us these two names is because when Rome took over, they cast out Annas and they put in charge Caiaphas. And so you have a two-functional high priest in the view of Rome. Jews might look at Annas, but Rome looks at Caiaphas. You heard these names. It's a list of some powerful names, isn't it? But why these names? Why the list? Is there, in fact, a purpose for it? I think the answer is yes. Luke is giving to you a history. Now, I will spare those of you who were with us last Lord's Day evening when we were looking in Judges chapter 11 and we looked at the Lord of history. But I want you to see again how valuable is your knowledge and understanding of history because Luke breaks a period of silence and he begins with history. He wants you to know something about these people. And what is he trying to say? Your history is important. What has taken place in the past is important. We live in a world when we consider the Bible or when the world considers the Bible. Maybe they say it's a book of morality. At best, perhaps they might say it's a book that demonstrates human existence. But that's it. This book it has events, it has details, it has names, but, but it's not true, it's not accurate. It's just filling up something. It, it wants to teach you how to be a better person. But I think what Luke is trying to say is, no, you've misunderstand this. This is a historical book. It is a redemptively historical book. And that is to say, it tells you how God has made the world and from its beginning to its end, how God is redeeming the world. How he is drawing in his people. But it's not just redemptive in that nature. It's also historical. It's telling you something. Do you believe that though? Luke is introducing John the Baptist in his ministry with history. And he, what is he saying? The Bible is full of truth claims. 
And so if you don't believe that these names, these dates, these locations, these numbers are in fact true, how would you believe any of it to be true? Because when you come to the Bible, you need to be asking questions, aren't you? Was Jesus real? Was he really born? Did that actually take place? Was he a real man? Did he die on the cross? Did he raise from the dead? Yes, those have eternal ramifications, but are they not historical? Aren't you and I challenged to say, did those events really happen? Because if they didn't, why would you believe any of what the Bible says? No, it's not an exhaustive history book, but all the history that's in it is 100% accurate. And when you begin to challenge it, I'm suggesting to you, you're challenging every letter of it. Not just a number, not just an event. You're challenging the author of it. And this book would say it's authored by God himself. And so Luke, I think, begins with this focus of history. Do you believe in redemptive history? You get a list of historical figures. They're prominent, they're powerful. But if you're a believer this morning, you read that list and perhaps you had a different feeling. It's not just a list of powerful names. It's also quite a sad list, isn't it? When you look at those names, they probably jump off the page quite quickly. Pontius Pilate. You remember him, don't you? You fast forward a few years and He's at the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Annas and Caiaphas, they're there as well. These are the men who will execute John the Baptist himself. And here is this list that Luke gives to us. Why? I think Luke is trying to tell you and me something. You know, when people ask, if you could go back to some time period, what would you choose? You would not choose this time period. That's what Luke is saying. This is a time period that is very difficult. It's dark. Its circumstances are dangerous. The people of God were not thriving. It was hard. But it's as Luke is saying, don't you see that even though it might be dark, even though circumstances might be difficult, it cannot stop the power of God that the ministry of God can happen whenever and wherever he chooses. And Luke, I think, is giving to you and to me a picture of hope. How do you evaluate your present circumstances? That should never equate to how you evaluate the power of God. And God's power is always one that is ruling and overruling, even above what you and I might think he can't do. He can do and perhaps will do. And so Luke is giving us this world history, and yet you were reading, and you thought, but that doesn't seem to be his main point. The emphasis doesn't seem to be so much these men, but what took place while these men were in power. Luke is trying to say, that's right. You might have heard of these men. I want you to get your bearing straight of where we are, but that's not what is most important. It's not who is in charge or what was most powerful, but the word of God. This is when the word of God came. 
This is when the people of God would hear from God again through his prophet, that is of John the Baptist. It's been some 400 years since the people of God have had a prophet. And here is John the Baptist on the scene preparing the way for the Lord. The most important thing Luke is grabbing our attention to is, do you hear the word of God? It is always more important than any other detail. And I just wonder, have you, did you think that that was just a past example? Is that any bit different today? Has the word of God somehow lost its power and its prominence that we don't think about it anymore? No, we probably don't start our days with, well, who is the president and the governor and the mayor? Maybe you do. That's a boring way to start your day. (laughs) But do you see what Luke is saying? How do you schedule your week? What does your week revolve around? Does it revolve around the word of God? Most clearly seen, Lord willing, on his day in his house before his people, the preached word of God. And, and I'm not suggesting that it means that you have figured out your vacations and your, your weekend activities. But have you so revolved your life when God's word is opened, it changes what you say yes and no to. Not just Monday through Saturday or perhaps even Sunday as an activity. Where should you go to church? Should you go to church? But does it have an effect on the decisions during your Mondays, during your Wednesdays or Thursdays? What kind of impact does the word of God have on you? And so Luke opens John the Baptist's ministry saying, here's the promise being fulfilled. We've already even read about it in our study of Luke. We heard it from the mouth of John the Baptist's dad in chapter one, that he would be a great prophet before the Lord. That's what the angel would tell us in Luke chapter one, verse 16. We have the even older prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40. And I think the point is over and over, do you see how faithful God is no matter what the circumstances you live in. He has made a promise and in Christ Jesus they are all yes and amen. It's for his people. You and I have a promise fulfilled that we can read in Luke chapter three. But that's obviously not the crux of the whole of that narrative. When we look at verses one through 20, the point of John the Baptist's ministry is preparation for Jesus. It's, a, it's that of making a way. It's, it's a going before the Lord. This is not a new pattern. This is not some kind of new idea. This would have been enriched in the people. That is Middle Eastern, ancient Near East culture when kings would return from battle. The people would line the streets, perhaps even decorate them. And one would always go before saying, Prepare yourselves, get ready. Here he comes. The one you've been waiting on. This is not even new for you, is it? If you go to concerts. My first concert was quite interesting. I'm not a musical person. I'm all about singing, and many of you know that. I'm just not musical. But when I went to a concert 
I, I was thinking I was going to see the one whose name was on the ticket, but that's not who came out first. I had no idea who came out first or second. And so I thought maybe I showed up at the wrong venue. But you understand that that is your pattern and mine, isn't it? We have people who make announcements. They prepare the way for this main act. And here is John the Baptist. He is saying, the king is coming. Get ready. And did you hear how he's fulfilling this prophecy, this preparation? Every valley shall be filled. All who are downcast, they will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. Those who think they are on high will be humbled. Crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. There is no person who cannot see Jesus. There's no place that in fact cannot get the gospel. It doesn't mean it will. But there's an ability issue. And God is saying, I can do as I please. I save who I choose and I show myself to whom I choose. And here is John the Baptist. This is the description of his ministry. What a vision. What a vision. How do you do something like that? I think Luke tells us. Before we get there, I want to draw your attention to something. Maybe you remember this date quite significantly. It's October 31st, 1517. You and I often consider that the day of the Protestant Reformation. You remember it, right? That is the German monk, Martin Luther. He took 95 theses. He nails it to the door at Wittenberg. And we remember Martin Luther and his boldness, his courage there. We think of Martin Luther and his, his work for the church and for the kingdom of God, speaking and teaching and writing on justification by faith alone. And we should consider him that. He did do a great work. But I just wonder if I asked you, could you tell me what that first thesis was that he nailed? Do you know what it is? This man whom we remember as the one who preaches and teaches justification by faith alone, this is his very first thesis. Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole of life of believers should be repentance. That's quite a start, isn't it? He's beginning with what? Repentance. How is Luke introducing to us the ministry of John the Baptist? It's that of repentance. Interestingly enough, John the Baptist isn't the only one who begins his ministry that way. So does the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He comes and says what? Repent and believe. For the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, we have to ask that question. Why is that so important? If you are to prepare the way for Jesus, how is this the foundational step? How is this the prelude? the inaugural step to getting ready for Jesus. You remember in John's gospel, John the Baptist sees Jesus and what does, he, what does he say? What does he proclaim? Behold, the Lamb of God. He, he's drawing people's attention. He's saying, there he is, the Lamb of God. Why? 
because he is the one who takes away the sins of the world. There's his point. That's the ministerial focus. That's the foundation of Jesus' ministry. It's the central truth. He is here to show forth what does atonement look like? What does reconciliation mean? How is one's sins removed? How is righteousness imputed? That's Jesus' ministry in a nutshell. And there he is, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the heart of his ministry, those who are dead might be made alive. And you're going, that's right. What a glorious message. What great news. That's the gospel. If that's true, what prevents us then? If Jesus and John both begin a ministry and say, repent and believe, why? Why would we forfeit such a blessing? Such a truth? I think it's because we don't have an appropriate view or understanding of our need of forgiveness. You see, you don't need to be forgiven if you don't think you've done something wrong. You're not looking for forgiveness if you think that you're okay and everything is all right. That's what plagues our world, isn't it? That's what plagues my heart and your heart. I want to say I'm a good person and yet deep down I cannot shake the guilt and the shame in my own life, in my own heart. I can't get rid of it. Even though I might go, but I'm okay. I haven't done these things. I don't look like that person. I'm okay. And yet my heart says, no, you're not. Even though we live in a world that says, well, let's not talk about sin. Let's remove the standard. Let's move it and say, that's just something that was imposed by a previous generation. That doesn't apply anymore. Yet why do our hearts still say there's something wrong? The late R.C. Sproul, I'm pretty sure it's him who has this encounter, but he, he's talking with a psychiatrist, a, a, a head of a mental institute, and this is what the head of that mental hospital says to him. I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they knew they would be forgiven. Here's John the Baptist's ministry. One of repentance. To be forgiven, you must repent. Repent. And so you see John the Baptist's opening line, don't you? In his sermon, if you wanted to call it as such, in verse seven. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now obviously, he has violated the principle that many hold to of win friends and influence people. But maybe, friends, he has a better principle that says you warn friends and you inform people of truth. You're not about the business of getting people to like you or getting people just to follow you for followers' sake so you can check a box of I'm a leader and I have fit this title. John the Baptist is saying, no, we need to warn people. We need to inform them of what's really at stake here. 
We've lost this in our culture. We have lost this in the church. We're all about trying to skip around sin and hell and judgment and repentance. We don't want to do that. We want to try to make people feel comfortable. But don't you see what John the Baptist is doing? Can't you and I agree that there's a measure of kindness in what he's saying? What is he saying to the people? You're destined for hell if you do not repent. It's real. Sin is real. It's deadly. And the wrath of God cannot change just because you want it to. He's saying, look, there's a real problem. Let's be honest about it. But we're so easily satisfied and we want to say things like he could have said it nicer. But he's being honest, isn't he? He's bringing clarification to a real problem. We so want to be concerned about how people feel. We want to use props in our worship service, skits, jokes, illustrations. We want you to laugh. We want you to cry. We want you to think great things. And you've failed to realize that you stand at odds with your maker. In fact, over this past week, I, I, I heard something and it was terrible. One heretic, and I'm calling him a heretic. He said, you know, He's talking about Jesus and his birth with Mary. He says, I, I like to reimagine Mary. I think we could reconsider her. He goes as far as to say, you don't know if Mary was the first person that the angel visited. She could have been the 50th. You understand he's just trying to make you feel better. And there were over and over and over and over these false teachings just so you might think I'm okay, and God can tolerate me, or better yet, I can tolerate him. And John the Baptist is saying, you brood of vipers, you have no idea who you have failed to look at. I mean not to be ugly. We are to be a welcoming church, but that means you as the members, the people of God are meant to be welcoming if you don't know Jesus, I need to help you understand something. You are not welcomed into worship because you are a sinner and you cannot come in the presence of a holy God. And if you're a Christian in here, you're not welcome into worship on your own merit. You worship God because he has clothed you with the righteousness of his son. That's how we get to come into worship. That's where those joyful songs come from. It's because you're not standing in your own shoes, as it were. You're standing in the shoes of Christ. He makes you presentable. And better yet, he makes your worship enjoyable. That's how we are to worship our God. We don't come in with this welcoming attitude. None of us came in here this morning and added something to the Lord. You didn't check the box to earn God's favor. God's not more excited about himself because Danny came to sing a song. That's not why we worship. That's not why we worship. John is speaking about a baptism of repentance. Now remember, this is that of preparation. Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk more about 
baptism. But this, what John the Baptist is talking about here, it's not a Christian baptism. This is a baptism of repentance. It's to make preparation for Jesus. And why are we learning this? Because of what John the Baptist is in fact doing. You see, the people of God at this point in time, baptism was already something that they practiced, but they associated baptism with Gentiles. You see, it's these Gentiles, they, they want to be a part of the covenant community. They want, to, they want to come to church. They want to take part in all of these things. But they're an unclean people. They're dirty. And so they need this ritualistic cleansing called baptism so that they could come in. But do you see what John the Baptist is doing? He's not talking to any Gentiles. He's talking to the Jews. And he's saying, you, Jews, you thought you were okay. You are unclean. You are dirty. You need to repent. Now I must say, repentance doesn't save you. It doesn't matter how many times you repent, how hard you repent, how sincere you are in your repentance. Repentance does not save. Only Jesus does. But you must repent to receive forgiveness. Because God is holy, he requires that we would repent. But because he's gracious, he offers forgiveness in and through his son. And that's John's point. He's saying there's a baptism that's coming that is far greater than what I am and what I am doing. It's different. He's saying you must repent. It's not a cover-up comment. As one author said it, He's talking about a repentance of contrition. You can think Psalm 51 with David, recognizing the evil of his sin and what he has done with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. There's this repentance of contrition. That's what he's talking about, not attrition. And if you're a parent in here, you know all about the repentance of attrition. That's your children. I'm sorry, can I get it back now? But you see... There's nothing so special about our kids that doesn't sit in our own hearts. That's what we do, isn't it? One is motivated by what we lost, attrition, and one is motivated by what we've done, contrition. And John is saying, you and I need to come to an honest picture of what we have done. We are all called to repent, and that has not changed It's still the call for today. But I think if we're honest, we're not a whole lot different than the Jews, are we? We don't want to. We don't want to repent. And I'm not sure why you don't want to. Maybe it's it's easier to look at someone else and go, they're a lot worse off than I am. So I think I'm okay. Maybe it's, I've been so wounded and hurt by others that I'm so focused on that I can't even begin to see my own sin. Maybe it's if people really knew what I did, that kind of shame and humiliation, how would I make it? I'd be all alone. I don't know 
why you don't want to repent. But I think we can agree the desire is the same. We see, as John the Baptist would say, these snake-like tendencies in our own heart that says, I want to say I'm a Christian because I prayed a sinner's prayer. I went to youth group. I went on this retreat. I've done these Bible studies. So it lets me live how I want to live. John the Baptist is saying, don't say you're a child of Abraham. Don't claim some biological rationale. You grew up in a Christian home. You've been to church all your life. Don't hold on to those things as though that will in fact save you. You look to Jesus. You repent and receive the forgiveness that is offered only in the gospel. And then you can sense what John is saying because he's saying, do you hear me, people? I'm not asking you to accept what I say. You must respond to what I say. Didn't you find that interesting? That at the end of his sermon, you've got the crowds. What should we do? If that's true, how do we, what do we do with this? He essentially says, be compassionate. Be generous. But it's not just the crowds. Tax collectors, well, what should we do? Be honest. Stop stealing. Even soldiers, what should we do? Take care of the people and be content. I don't think he's trying to give some kind of vanilla formula, as it were, of this is what you specifically need to do in all situations. I think he's saying sin is specific and we repent specifically. And so when you're asking the question, what shall I do? It's that sin that just came to your heart. That's it. Repent. Come to the Lord and say, I am wrong. But I do love what John the Baptist is suggesting here. It's not some grand activity. It's not go walk around the city seven times. It's not go to that church. It's not go to that person. It's not come up with this great idea. He's talking about a very ordinary way of living. But it is a transformed way of living. And he's saying, repent of those sins. The ordinary life is that of one of repentance. You don't need to go somewhere to someone else to live such a life. What a sermon. You can't be mad at these people that when they hear such a sermon, they go, this must be the one. This has got to be the Messiah. And then you understand why John the Baptist is going, not me. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And some of you already know this. That was something for slaves. Not even Jewish people, not even Jewish servants could do that. And what is John the Baptist saying? I'm not even worthy of that which I am already worthy of. I cannot untie his sandals. That which is most degrading in society, I don't even measure up to that. He's not being some self-deprecating person. He's being Christ-exalting. He's saying, you don't know who this king is. You're not ready for him. If you knew who he was, you would agree with me. We are not the Messiah. Do not look at us. You know, Martin Luther has a pretty 
Maybe you would say it's an extreme quote. I might suggest to you an accurate one. As the Reformation was growing and people were beginning to follow him, they were kind of determining what do we call ourselves? And they wanted to call themselves Lutherans. And Luther says, no, absolutely not. And this is what he has to say about it. I ask that people make no reference to my name. Let them call themselves Christians, not Lutherans. What is Luther? After all, the teaching is not mine. Neither was I crucified for anyone. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 would not allow the Christians to call themselves Pauline or Patrine, but Christian. How then should I, poor stinking maggot fodder than I am, come to have people call the children of Christ by my wretched name? Not so. My dear friends, let us abolish all party names and call ourselves Christian. Don't call yourself Presbyterians, Methodists, non-denominate. I don't care what term you want to use. You're a Christian or you're not. Luther's saying, I'm not the Messiah. He is. Look to him. The reason why it's so hard for us is because we always want to stand so tall. Look at who I am. We never really want to bend the knee very low, do we? And say, instead, look to him. That's what John is saying. What do we do? We repent. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, John... It's gospel, not John the Baptist. John the Baptist is saying here, I'm, I'm unworthy to tie this man's sandals. Don't be awestruck at that. Be awestruck that the one he's unworthy to untie will be the one who in fact washes his disciples' feet. That king comes and does that which John himself is supposed to be more valuable than. He's saying, I'm not the king. Christ is far more worthy than you think. You are far more sinful than you're willing to admit. And yet the grace of God is far more extravagant than you can imagine. Do you remember our confession of faith this morning? What is it that we do? We have a true apprehension of our sin. We're very clear with who I am before the Lord on my own account but it doesn't stop there. Do you remember what you confessed? It's not just a true apprehension of sin. We also confess that we have a true apprehension of God's mercy, that he welcomes sinners into his presence by the blood of his own son. And he says, come to me. All those who will repent and believe, I will give you rest. That's why your confession said, then pursue obedience. Because if you have been made new, then live anew. Live in the record of righteousness and do so because you've been forgiven. Let me pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we, we need to be honest with our sin. We need to be told that we're snakes. That we want to cover up our sin or maybe we want to justify our sin. But what we need 
is to see our sin and then to see Jesus. That as our eyes might be lifted up to him, we would in fact see our sin and our name written on the marks of his body and hear the words, you are forgiven. Come to me and I will give you rest. Eat and you will live. Drink and you will be satisfied. And so I pray this morning, there's a lot of people in here And yet what is consistent of all of us is we need to repent. Some of us need to repent because we are dead in trespasses and sins and can only be made alive in Christ. Some of us perhaps need to repent because we're holding on to a sin and we don't want to let it go. Some of us need to repent because we're hurt by sin and yet we don't want to see who we really are. Some of us are afraid of our sin. We all have it. Help us, O Lord not to stand tall, but to bend low and to be reminded of the great prophecy that we heard. The valley will be filled. That's what Christ does. As he is lifted up, he lifts us up. So help us to be humble, Lord Jesus, and repent. We ask in your name, amen.